Today we have DJ Van Curren on the show. Are you a wealthy family trying to preserve and responsibly grow your wealth? Join DJ Van Curren as he talks about his experience and how family offices think. As someone who has been working in this space for years, DJ reveals the unique issues that arise and how real estate can be the solution for many families looking to protect their wealth. In this episode, you will learn relationships are key. The wealth creator is many times in an entirely different industry from real estate. And statistics show that 70% of second generation and 90% of third generation loses wealth. Listen and learn. I'm Darren Batchelder, an ex-corporate guy turned business owner and real estate investor. It wasn't long ago that I was searching for a new way to provide for my family. Dreaming of finding a way to achieve both financial freedom and freedom of my time. Fast forward through many learning lessons and you'll see the business and the real estate portfolio I have today, which changes lives and gives me so much more freedom. The freedom that I thought only existed as a dream. Along with our partners, we recently closed on our 12th multifamily property for a total acquisition value of over $275 million in Texas, Arizona, and South Carolina. And it all started with a duplex. We found a way to preserve our capital, grow our wealth, and save taxes. I started this podcast because I wanted to get the word out and share with others. If you are a C-level executive or other high net worth individual who wants to preserve your capital and build your wealth responsibly by investing in multifamily real estate, but you don't know how, then you've come to the right place. We developed a way to invite others to invest in our properties and do the same thing we've done. These are opportunities that are not available anywhere else. This may be perfect timing for you. To see if it's a mutual fit, schedule a discovery call at calendly.com forward slash dbatchelder forward slash investor. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on DJ Van Curren before we start the show. DJ graduated from Harvard on the Dean's List. He has been working with and for family offices for years. He sheds light on what's important to family offices, how they make decisions, and how they think. At the end of the day, family offices are looking for ways to preserve their capital and grow their wealth responsibly. Listen and learn. Hello, everyone. Today we have a very special guest. We've got DJ Van Curren. DJ, appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me, dear. Absolutely. So just a little bit on how we know each other. Um, This is actually the first time I'm talking to DJ. I reached out to him uh, via LinkedIn because he is an expert on family office real estate. And I don't really know that much to, 
you know, in terms of dealing with family offices, uh, predominantly all the deals I've been involved in have been with high net worth individuals. And um, so I'm very interested to kind of pick his brain. This guy is a complete expert. He is a Dean's List graduate from Harvard, and um, he's got a ton of experience. So I'm very excited for this. So DJ, appreciate you coming on. Hey, first thing I typically ask is how many properties and how many units you're invested in. I know that you basically work on behalf of family offices. So maybe share, you know, the level of transactions you've been involved with. Sure. So, um, you know, over the last seven years, I've uh, worked for a number of prominent families, a billionaire here in Denver. Uh, some pe people uh, may have heard of Giorgio Perfume, Georgia Beverly Hills, who I got headhunted by, and we came up with a boutique office brand strategy and then did some work for one of the owners of one of the major league baseball, play, uh, baseball teams, and then formed Evergreen. Uh, the first family we started working with is the Marriott family. And, um, but historically, you know, Evergreen, myself, my partner, we've about uh, 50 years experience, about 16 billion of uh, various property types uh, in two countries. Also experience uh, taking a REIT from one property uh, to about 80, selling it for 1.4 billion, helping with that structure and sale. And then, um, my partner also had a fully integrated real estate company where his investors were some major institutions, including Apollo. Um, from a multifamily component, we've, uh, you know, been part of uh, about 3,000 units. And then, as I said, other various property types as well. That's fantastic. It, uh, I'd love to be a fly on the wall on some of those, <laughs> those transactions that you've been involved in. So, um, you know, part of that goes to, to mindset, you know, in terms of being able to be involved with th these types of players. Um, but before we get into that, you know, maybe share a little bit. I want to try to get under the covers in terms of, you know, how do family offices think? You know, what, what are they looking for in a partner? What are they looking for in, in an investment? Um, and how do you, you know, bridge that, that divide? There's a saying within the industry, and, and which is an old cliche, but they say when you've met one family office, you've met one family office. But the one thing that stays standard in every, every family that I've worked for, they've said you have three responsibilities. One is don't lose money, don't lose money, don't lose money. And, you know, the average portfolio of a family, when you look at the overall portfolio, is about 7%. Um, on the real estate side, it's about 12%. So that's if you just carve that off. But the biggest problems that family ha families have is that 70% of families lose their wealth by the second generation. 90% lose their wealth by the third generation. Wow. And uh, which is significant. And these are families that are worth uh, on average 250 million or more, you know, over a billion, billions of dollars. And the average allocation actually is 22.5%, um, which goes to real estate out of that whole portfolio. And so, you know, these families are, are looking for uh, opportunities. It really depends on the type of family. Um, they're much more like re your retail investor because it is their own money. They may not have access to that type of money ever again. Um, and so there's some that are looking strictly for income some that are looking for growth. 
some that are looking at a combination. And of course, you have the great tax benefits that real estate offers. So, you know, I'm an evangelicist that real estate is the solution for wealthy families. And, and that doesn't matter um, or just families in general. And the only difference is that you're adding a zero, um, you know, to that or number of zeros to what that net worth of the family is. And it also has to do with the uh, size of the properties many times, but many times too, they're investing into properties that somebody that might only be putting in a hundred thousand themselves in as well. Yeah, that's crazy. So what, I mean, those are some, those stats, 70% lose their wealth in the second generation, 90% in the third generation. So I'm sure that you have stats on why. So why, why do these families lose so much wealth in the second and third generation? There's a couple of reasons. Um, and, you know, a great example of what can happen is in, uh, if you ever watch Succession, Succession is a fantastic show. Uh, in fact, you can see that one of the one of the sons actually said, "Well, I'm going to buy this condo from from my dad." And the white and the um, his stepmother was like, "Okay, seventy million bucks." He's like, "Done." Well, that's no appraisal. That's no nothing, right? So that right. one is a lack of education and really understanding. So education is a component. Um, the second issue is, and these aren't necessarily in order, but the second thing is that they didn't create the wealth where the patriarch or the matriarch did. So they don't necessarily understand how to keep the wealth or create greater wealth. You know, it's, it goes along the lines of people that win the lottery. I mean, they all lose the money because they didn't know how they made it. Right. Right. So I get that piece, but like, I guess I would think that there's, you know, the person, the generation that built the wealth mm -hmm. now has somebody like yourself that's helping, <laughs> helping them. Not, not necessarily. I'll tell you. And then the second generation, they, don't they use the same people? Or well, no? okay. So let's back up a little bit here too, right? Because outside, you know, 50%, let's say of the younger family members, they don't want to be involved. They're just like, send me a check. Send me my check. Right. Sometimes there's like, Hey, give me my portion and then I'm going to do what I want to with it. Um, it also, maybe that patriarch or matriarch never indoctrinated or gave up controls and helped the younger family know how to manage money and invest it. And, and what's really uh, interesting to me over all the years and all the families that I know or worked for is that they create their wealth, let's say in a business. And they have quarterly meetings, they have goals, they have objectives, they have, um, uh, you know, annual reviews, right? They know how they're going to allocate, they're going to hire the best people, etc. Well, when they get this wealth and they have a windfall, 200 million, a billion dollars, whatever that number is. On a sale of the business. Yeah, let's remember, they spent the last 40 years to create that wealth in chemicals or maybe making tires, making automotive parts, maybe technology. And right. they don't understand real estate, hedge funds, private equity, um, uh, venture capital, right? And there are people that, as you know, that just in real estate, right? They're, they spend their whole career in real estate, but not just real estate. It might be multifamily and it may right. not be just multifamily, but it might be mid-market or 
certain parts of the country, right? So how can you expect somebody to understand all the intricacies of all these aspects, right? right? So that's the first thing. So when you're making decisions, unfortunately, I've met a lot of families that will look at, for example, the deal before they look at the operator and the sponsor, well, it doesn't matter how good a deal is if the operator or sponsor can't implement, right? So that's right. another reason. Second, another thing too is that five, 95% of the time people fall into the family office space. That's what happened to me. I never planned. I never went looking for it. And it just happened. And one of the reasons is because they have all this wealth. Families are all about trust. So now I have all this tremendous wealth who do I know that I trust? Well, I know my banker. I know my advisor. I know my attorney, my accountant, maybe my next door neighbor who used to run a business. Well, these people too, regardless of how intelligent they are, their pedigree, their experience, they're in the same boat. They don't understand real estate and hedge funds and venture capital and private equity. And then there's subcategories of those as well. So because of that, it doesn't necessarily you know, they, they, they don't also know where to go. And then you add on the fact that majority of these families that created their wealth and business, they don't abide by the same principles that got them there. So they don't have an investment policy statement. They don't have an investment committee. They haven't put governance in place and family councils, right. For making decisions or how to base that transition. Um, they don't like to hire necessarily the best people. And so they will, um, you know, you're going to make more money in the private sector than you are working for a family, right? And then the secondly, too, if it's a family member that comes in, they even make less than that industry person, right? So if it's real estate, that institutional person is going to be here financially, then you have the family office person, and then you have a family member, and they don't want to pay because they're like, I'm not going to pay you because you're a family member. You should be helping the family out anyway, even though they're spending the full amount of time. So you have all these issues. Combine that with your typical family issues. If you have a brother, a sister, an uncle, an aunt, a father, a mother, everything's not perfect. You guys, right. there'll be a, a, a feud at some point in time or a, a disagreement or misunderstanding. Now add hundreds of millions of dollars to that. Wow. Right. And, and these are the things that people, you know, don't necessarily think they're just like, write me a check. You have all this money, just write me a check and be on with it. Well, there's other issues they're dealing with that we can't even relate to. Right. And, um, you know, so do they find good advisors? Yeah, many do find good advisors, but you'd be very surprised, I think, in a lot of ways. I mean, you brought up a lot of things that I wasn't even thinking of. I mean, just the, the source of the money. Like there's so many different businesses that have been built and then all of a sudden they, maybe they get to, you know, the age where they want to sell the business. They sell the business. They have this big windfall. They form a family office. But like you said, they don't have experience in allocating to different asset classes and, and the expertise in all the different areas. And, but in my mind, I just think family office you know, has a, you know, big trick writing capabilities and, and, you know, lots of wealth. And you just assume that they have the education, but that's not the case. And that's exactly what helped happen to me. So 
I, as I said, I fell into the family office space and I met with a very seasoned person at a conference I went to because I needed to understand. And I said to her, I said, so what have you been working on? She goes, well, you know, we had 60 families in Israel. And I said, what'd you talk about? And she looked at me and she goes, oh, you know, hedge funds 101. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, maybe she doesn't know what she's talking about because these people, just like you said, are very smart, talented, successful people. And you're telling me you're telling them hedge funds 101? Well, yes, that's the reality, you know? And the other thing too, is that a lot of people think families are like institutions, they're like the Blackstones of the world, the Goldman Sachs. They have all this money, right? And they're going to write a big check. The reality is, is that they are more like your typical pr uh, private investor, retail client that has maybe 500000 a million dollars net worth. And the difference between the two is that on the institutional side, they're typically, they're hired hands. They're investing money from pensions and everything else. There is zero emotions because it's not their own money right on the personal side right whether you're that retail client that's worth a half a million or uh you're a family that's worth a half a billion it's your personal money you've worked hard to get there you're not going to have another exit like that i mean 99 of the time you never will ever again and right. so i it's an emotional decision and if i don't really know then I got to make good decisions and I still don't have that necessarily real understanding. And, and so because of that, they don't write checks right off the board. They're all about relationships. Relationships. It is all about relationships because there's two things. If you, you know, if somebody comes to you, Darren, and they say, Hey, nice to meet you. I got this deal going on. You know, we, we need 10 million bucks. Right. And, and you have it you've got hundreds of millions of dollars, you're going to be like, okay. But if after six months, nine months, a year, you know, and you're like, Hey, we're working on a deal. You want to take a look at it? Which are you more apt to get serious about? Somebody that just asks you today or somebody right. that you've built a relationship with. They've watched your podcast or heard, listened to your podcast. They've watched your videos. They've gotten maybe a newsletter from you or phone calls or you've talked to them. Where are they going to be more comfortable? Right? Absolutely. So talk about you, you created this family office for Institute. Mm -hmm. And why did you create that? And, you know, kind of what's involved and who does it serve? The Family Office Real Estate Institute came by mistake. And how just, that- Just like you getting into the business of the family office. That's right. It, it really did. And, and what happened was after, three months after I talked to that same person I told you that said, oh, you know, Hedge Funds 101, three months later, I'm like, okay, I get it now. I understand because of all the reasons I just told you. So I started off with a simple website, which just told about market cycles and simple things. Uh, then I wrote a book on family office real estate investing. Uh, then I started doing podcasts, similar to what you're doing, interviewing experts, asking them what they think, et cetera. Uh, and then I started the family office real estate magazine, which is a quarterly publication. We're going on our, I think our fifth year now. Started to speak at conferences, you know, everywhere as much as I could, writing articles for Forbes and writing articles for various magazines and everything else. 
and then doing video interviews similar to what you're doing, uh, and then started the largest family office real estate investing study actually in the in the world. And um, and then I had a consortium, and at the consortium. Uh, I brought in 22 families. I kicked out eight because nowadays there's a lot of people that say they're family offices, but they're not. Um, it seems to be a big cliche now. Uh, and we had about, uh, you know, 10 sponsors that were there. I booked us. Um, it was in Breckenridge. Right. And we also brought in a professor to talk about cycles and then uh, went out to dinner at night, went through deals in the day. Uh, and then on Friday, uh, at 11 o'clock, we finished, and I booked us at the base of Breckenridge so people could go skiing together, right? So it was a super fun. But Glenn Miller from the um, University of Denver said, DJ, would you be interested in starting the Family Office Real Estate Institute at the University of Denver? And I said, sure, let's explore this. Um, ended up, like many universities, just getting political, and we said we're just going to do it ourselves. And so... You know, we I took everything that I was doing and put it into the institute, but we also added our executive education program. So it's like any other at Harvard, Wharton, uh, University of Chicago. And in fact, we had professors from Harvard and Wharton, University of Denver, University of Chicago, University of Indiana. These are major professors. Um, Peter Linneman, Glenn Miller, right? Joe Pagliera, head of real estate at University of Chicago Business School. Uh, my old professor um, from Harvard. So, and then we also have industry experts in the family office space. So we do that on campus. We also have online. We also have on demand. So if people just want to take one class, they can. The magazine's in there, videos, interviews, the annual study. Glenn Miller brought in his well-known quarterly market monitor, which tells us where we are in the cycle based on property types and location. And, um, and, uh, and then we also have white papers and we're starting to produce, um, case studies. Eventually we'll have a family office real estate index to monitor where, how families are investing. And then we're doing a consortium, like I mentioned, and then we'll have a major conference every year at the university of Denver. And that is with, uh, initially it'll be 60 families. Um, and we've got, you know, billionaires coming in and other family members. And it's really, it was created toward, uh, family offices, uh, multifamily offices, family members, um, and, uh, family office executive, but also industry professionals. And what's happened, and I mentioned this before about being a, um, Angelicists for this, ambigelis <laughs> speaking highly about this, should we say, is that I believe, and there's even proof to it, that real estate can be that solution to help maintain a legacy and uh, create and maintain generational wealth. Well, I mean, as you were saying, all those different factors, that's what, what I was thinking was, look, DJ saw there was a problem. There were family offices had a lot of wealth, but they didn't have the education. They didn't really know how to manage it. And so you provided a solution by helping educate not only the, the ones that created the wealth, but also the family members that are involved. You started looking at, okay, not only what investments should should be involved in and how to look at those investments, but also 
just the intricacies of what happens with families that are wealthy. Some, some are interested in the business and some are not. Some are just, you know, and how do you manage through all that? And, and you provided a solution and education for um, that community of people. Well, it's also, you know, one of the things we do in the executive education is we, and we have some of the best people that's come in and spoke. They also spoke, we have a couple of classes that might talk about governance, about family councils, investment committees, investment policy statements, right? And that's just, that's a small example, right? And, and and that's for a couple of things because it could be a family that created their wealth in real estate and they want to understand, well, how do I make sure that, you know, I can transfer the business to my my next, you know, family uh, underling, or maybe they don't want to, maybe they're like, I'm out. We've got to diverse, get rid of the properties, et cetera, make sure that we have a plan in place. And that's not only important for the families, it's also important for, um, and you brought this up too. You said, well, I didn't realize some, uh, something I said, I didn't really realize that. Well, if you're going to work with a family, you need to understand that too. You need to understand what are some of the issues they're dealing with. And I've got many examples where, you know, that wasn't understood and it actually caused the problem for the families because they did trust that person or whatever. And, you know, these are things that need to be brought forward. And, um, you know, even families that go out and say, I'm going to bring in other outside money. Well, are they registered? Are they not? What could that do to the rest of their wealth? I mean, you know, so there's a lot of variables that you know, you have to think about, especially with the greater wealth that you have. And, um, you know, so that's what we're looking to solve and, and provide solutions. And once again, like you said, education. And then we also have the community side because families love talking to other families because they have issues that we can't understand. Right. And, you know, I've tried to have people um, write articles for me and people either know the family office space or they understand the real estate space, but I have yet to find somebody that really understands both. I mean, there are a few, right? But really both to bring those together. And so our value add is that you've got somebody that's actually worked for families, right? You also have the other side where Glenn Miller is the academic director, so now you have the education and academic side, and we both know real estate. And, you know, that's a three-legged stool that we happen to put together for this. And, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it comes out. Um, and I can tell you just by family sending me deals to look at, I mean, indirectly, I've saved them millions of dollars just by questions maybe they asked or things they needed to look at differently. So on this show, the, the listeners are mainly... I net worth individuals that are passive investors and also syndicators looking to to scale. Um, you know, one of the ways to scale potentially is to you know work with family offices that have a larger check writing capability. You mentioned building relationships. How do you suggest these syndicators start to one? be introduced to some of these folks and then two, how to go about building those relationships. So the hardest, the biggest issue of working with families is to find out where they are. They, they're, you know, if you want to go to an institution like a Blackstone, a Goldman, you can just Google it 
And if you want to look for the people that invest the real estate, you can Google it and you'll find out. You're not going to know about the Jones family office or where they created their wealth. So that's one of the, the most difficult things to do. Um, you can find some at the various conferences that are around. And all you have to do is Google family office conference. Um, and there's, you know, a number of them that are actually really good to go to. But, you know, what's what happened with the Institute is exactly really, and, and we do have sponsors, people that want to participate as sponsors because some are like, well, I have access to them. But the, you really need to understand, which is your question of how you work with families. Right. And it's the videos like this doing interviews with people. It's the video interviews, the podcasts. It's writing the articles. It's providing information for them to know who you are and what you do. It can be as simple as email drips where you set up emails to say, Hey, you know, this is what's going on in the current economy. This is the way we see it. You know, that's a value add because you're giving them a perspective. Once you know, so first you have to find out who they are and, and, and how to be in contact with them. Um, and then you could do some of these Oh, you really should be doing this with anybody, quite honestly. Absolutely. You should, you should be doing everything that, you know, uh, I spoke about anyway. Um, but I think that a lot of syndicators, they do that with, you know, high, what they, you know, we would classify high net worth individuals. Um, they're going to invest 50000 to 250000 type of, of investments. Um, and you know, they're staying in contact, doing newsletters, having educational components and, um, meetup groups and all those, all those things. But I think that there's, whether it's rightfully so or not, I think that there's another, and we, I, I led up with it in the beginning about mindset. I think there's a little bit of an intimidation factor, you know, with, with dealing with a family office that, oh, they've got so much more money. You know, do they really want to work with me? Well, so I'll Which tell you. Which is a limiting belief, right? Well, so I know probably 500 families or more now. And I have tracked, I think over the last eight years, I've met two jerks. Some of the best people are these people that are worth an extreme amount of money. And that's because they've got nothing to prove, right? They're just like, typically, you know, like what I'm wearing today, I have jeans on. I've just got some slip-on shoes. I have a dress shirt and a, and a jacket. This is standard, right? It's not a tie. It's not a full suit. And um, they are the best people. I mean, I can't tell you how awesome they are. I think it, you know, you have to realize it's just like people that are stars and people that are out there all the time. They're just normal people. I mean, if you, you, you go online and you look to say, where does this person live? Or, you know, Adam Sandler, who's worked all this money, and you see he just has a normal house, <laughs> a normal kitchen doing normal things. You know, you look at it differently. So I think, you know, don't let anything. And there are people that are very, you know, like a Bill Gates is a little bit more, I think, a whole different level. But um, sure. It's something you shouldn't. And it's still about relationship and they're just people. And they're really they're just people. people. Which which goes one thing too is when you say where to find them. If a family office is happy with you and they like you, 
they will refer you to other families. So it could be referrals from accountants or attorneys. It could be from another family. I mean, I hate to say this, but at the end of the day, the fundamentals always remain the same, referrals. Right. I mean, it's, and, and keeping top of mind. I mean, those are the two fundamental things. It doesn't matter if you're raising money, if you're, if you're selling pens, paper. I mean, it still comes back to that, right? I, I agree. Look, I've interviewed a lot of, you know, not in the family office space, but um, a lot of real estate investors that, quite frankly, they've built up enough wealth that they, they could be sitting on a beach. Yeah. Right? But, they, but they love what they do. Yep. And a lot of those people are so giving in terms of like wanting to help the next guy. That's right. And so what I'm hearing you say is it's really no different on the family office side. The, the people that have built the wealth, there's a lot of great people that want to help the next guy, you know, come well, up. The and ladder. they don't, and they yeah. don't necessarily, they also want people they can trust that they feel comfortable to invest with. Now, it could take, you could meet somebody today that's very wealthy. It could take you three months. It could take you three years. It could take you five years, sure. right? For when they're eight ready, when they feel comfortable, et cetera. So it's very important to, you know, to keep in touch um, with them and follow up and just say, okay, they said no on this deal. So I'm just going to move on. You know, you don't want to do that. Um, but the one thing's a couple things, families, they might start with a $200,000 check or a $2 million check, but the next check could very well be 2 million or 10 million because they sort of want to test the, you know, and that happens with the, you're just regular investors. Well, right. If they're comfortable, right. they're going to tell other people if they're comfortable, they're going to invest more. And, and so Remember, these are not institutions. That's the biggest thing, I think, the big, biggest mis misnomer. You know, if, if you go online and you go to, uh, you know, MetLife's real estate, they're probably going to be a one-pager that you can download or look on their website, and they're going to say, we invest in industrial properties between 50 to 100 million in Denver and Salt Lake City and Dallas, right? We look for a 15% return on... so. You can call them and say, here's a deal. And if it fits their box, they'll say, I'll take a look at it. And once again, it's not their own money. Families are like every common day person. It's just adding zeros. Right. So what about, um, do, fate, do family offices have gatekeepers? Like I would imagine that, you know, you call into corporate office, you're, you're calling on the Fortune 500, you know, you're going to have gatekeepers they're going to keep you know salespeople away from the executives until they can get figure out a way to get in and show their value and i would imagine that because the there's more zeros involved that there's a little bit of are they just interested in me for the money so that happens a lot, especially when people are like, I need 10 million. Like we talked about, they think they're going right. to just write them a check. I can't tell you how many times I've been sent on LinkedIn and people have literally said that. I'm like, you know, and this was when I worked for a family and I'm like, no, you know, <laughs> right, right. Um, or where's my checkbook. Right. So we can write you money. Um, there's five different types of, of um, real estate investors with families. 
The first one is the family that created their wealth in real estate. Everybody knows somebody like that. I mean, Trump's an example of a family, right? You look at, um, you know, other major families, that's where they made their money. The second are, are, are families like a Bill Gates, a Michael Bloomberg, a Michael Dell, where they have a significant amount of money, but they hire the people from these institutions like Carlisle, Goldman, Blackstone. And that's who's making these decisions on behalf of, of uh, you know, the, the, the uh, family, right? Then you have a third type, which are um, families that will co-invest with sponsors. And they'll look for between five to seven that they can continue to invest in in a property type that they do like. And incidentally, from our study for four years in a row, you know, the largest allocation and the most interest of investing of over 70% every year is multifamily, right? So, um, so, but they'll invest, co-invest. So they'll look for direct investment. 70% of families want to go direct. You then have the fifth, fourth type. And those are families that are, will say, um, I'm going to build out my own portfolio. And so I'm going to buy my own properties. Maybe I'll hire an, an internal property manager, right, to oversee, to make sure things are going well. But we own them. And then the, the fifth type are, are those that they don't have the resources to do due diligence. Um, they only go into funds because it's easy. It gives them diversification. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, you do have families that are worth billions of dollars that go in funds. But that's because they have to get money out the door. So if you look at a Bill Gates, a Ross Perot, Michael Bloomberg, the minimum check they're going to write is $20 million because they have so much money that they have to put out the door. Well, another alternative is going into funds because it gives them diversification. They don't have to do diligence every single property that's available. And so, um, you know, back to your question, if it's the family that created the, the, the wealth in real estate, you could talk to them. That's not an issue. If you have a team in place, probably not going to talk to the patriarch. You're going to talk to, with that group. Right. The uh, family person that's investing into direct deals, not you can talk directly with that person. Not a problem. And, you know, it's not going to make a difference if the family just buying their own real estate properties. And then you also have, um, you know, and then you can talk to the other family. So it's not... I'd say 60, 70% of the time you can speak with the people at the top. It's just a matter of um, picking up the phone, making the phone call. I remember one time, this was about 10, 15 years ago, I picked up the phone. I was in New York City and I called, I think it's Kathy Huff, uh, Huffington from Huffington Post. Okay. And she just picked up the phone. I don't know why I called her. I don't remember what it was, but she just picked up the phone. And I was like, holy cow. Right. So. Um, so, yeah. So I, don't be afraid. It's, it's these are regular people. And, um, you know, I think that this is important to learn from families if you're a sponsor or if you're an investor and a passive investor. The fundamentals are the same. Find somebody you like working with if you like a property type because you understand it better. Invest in that property type. If you had success with somebody, reinvest with them. Ask other people if you're looking to invest now into industrial. Maybe you know some people that invest industrial. Well, who would they refer, right? And then on the 
other side, back to the sponsor, ask if they know, ask for, do you know anybody else? We got to fill this up. Do you know of anybody else that might have an interest? I think that's the biggest hurdle that a lot of sponsors have. And, and, um, you just need to ask. Oh, that's, that's perfect. Um, what about, um, because they're writing larger checks, are the family offices typically looking to get preferential treatment into a deal, say pref equity type of a relationship versus coming in at the, you know, parapasu with other, you know, limited partners? It depends on the family. It depends on how big the check is. Now, we have a family office real estate consortium that we invest on behalf of families, but we invest into operators, right? So we don't deal with the day-to-day. We invest into the sponsors. Anytime that somebody invests with us, my partner's like, look, if they want to negotiate because of the size check, we should. My belief is, no, you're going to pay the same thing everybody else says, Right. You can make a case to say, well, if they're writing a $10 million check and everybody's writing a $500,000 million, $2 million check that they have, you know, that type of leverage. Um, but um, I think it, it depends on if you're comfortable and if you want that money or you want that relationship. You have to feel that out because they may want some decision-making capabilities. They may want some controls. Right. That's... Now, that's where a large family can be like an institution, that if they have the level of sophistication and they have the ability to step in and replace you as an operator with somebody else, then they may try to negotiate certain terms and controls, which is what an institution will do when they're bringing in 90% of the money. Right. That makes sense. Um so you had mentioned that you also were, you know, looked at cycles in the real estate cycle. So, you know, we just had huge increase in interest rates. Um, can you talk about, you know, where you think real estate is in the cycle? And then in real estate, there's a lot of different asset classes. You know, this show is mainly focused on multifamily, but there, there's a lot of other asset classes. There's office and retail and self-storage and RV parks and mobile home parks and whatnot. So what do you like in today's environment? So talk about the cycles and then what do you like in today's environment? So for the last three, four years, I've gone on record at conferences on interviews like this, where I'm like, we're not going to see a uh, recession until on the real estate side till it was 27, 28, I say 28, 29 now, because we sort of Really? We were in a black hole with uh, COVID, so it pushed us back a year, right? And I say this for a couple of reasons. We, you know, when you look at the four phases, right? And this comes directly from Glenn, Glenn Miller who, with the Mueller Market Monitor, uh, Miller Market Monitor. And you have, you know, phase one's your recovery phase, phase two's your expansion, and you then have hypersupply and recession. Well, if you look at... Um, you know, rents that are rapidly, you know, going toward new construction letter, uh, levels, high rent growth, which is happening in, in some cities, et cetera, but you don't have necessarily uh, rent growth that's uh, declining necessarily. Now, with the when you look at multifamily, 
there's still a huge demand for another five years. And, wow. and, that's, and that's because you have, uh, you know, the cost of housing here in Denver. There's a shortage of housings. People are already saying it's too expensive to move here. But where are people moving? You know, from California, this is not expensive for them to come right. here or New York um, because you have cost of living, quality of life. You have jobs, right? And when you have that, people are going to move to those areas. With the housing on, on the apartment side, if you just look at what that, if there's no housing to buy and it's too expensive to buy, you have these younger, uh, the younger generation, which is, um, they're, they're just huge amount of debt because of uh, college. Well, they can't afford to buy, right? So you have this demand. Now, one of the places that I've been saying for a long time where you can shoot the gap is the senior housing you know, my parents went to um, uh, sell their house after 40 years. They have so much stuff. Do you think they're going to want to move again? They're right. not going to. And if they go into an apartment, then they're not moving. They're getting Social Security and a pension or whatever. So, you know, it's sticky money. And, um, you know, the, that age demographic continues to grow. So we're not below inflation. We don't have negative rent growth, right? Um when you look at the history of what we've done, because you can go back 250 years in the U.S., the U.K., and Australia, and, and real estate runs in 18-year cycles. And the issue you have is um, we do the same thing over and over again, where the banks, well, first off, we have too much building. And then we come out of it. Banks are not necessarily wanting to lend because they're worried People necessarily aren't in uh, building because they're like, we've got too much inventory. What are we going to do? That starts burning off. And then all of a sudden, banks start loosening lending. You get more development that's happening. People are feeling better, so they're investing more. All of a sudden now from a 65% loan to value going up to a 75% loan to value. And then developers make money by developing and they continue to develop and banks are lending and people are investing we have too much supply. And then the whole thing, we go into a recession where we've got too much supply and we're hanging out and banks are like, oh my gosh, I'm worried. They stop lending, they pull back, right? And then the whole thing starts all over again and it happens over and over and over again. And so we still have, you know, there's a huge demand. You look at property types too. I mean, uh, industrial cold storage. There's a... Um, uh, there is 200,000, 200 million uh, needed globally. And there was only like 50 million in the pipeline. Wow. And, and, and this was really accentuated from COVID and, and with what happened with people ordering stuff, you look at workforce housing, true workforce housing, where the people are, 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 um, you know, working 15 to $25 an hour jobs. And um, they're, they're going through and they need a place to stay. There's an 8 million deficit of units that are needed. If you look at Houston alone, there's a 200,000 deficit, which is $48 billion opportunity. If you build 2,000 units, which is one of the things we're doing in five years, we're only going to, with no growth, we're only going to take care of 1% of that demand. Oh. These are, these are, you know, th these are continuing on, 
it, people still need places to live. They, they still have issues. And, and so it's just a matter of what's going to happen. You meant rising interest rates. Well, and loans came down, loan to values came down. So that's going to slow things up. And it is going to cause a lot of stress and issues in the multifamily market for sure. However, there's still that demand that's there. It's really interesting. So the, if I heard you correct, and, and the two things that you look for before going into a real estate recession would be negative rent growth and too much supply. Yeah. And what you're saying is we don't have that. Rent growth has slowed, but it's not going negative. And we definitely don't have too much supply. We do have a lot of units that are in the, in, you know, in the development stage mm-hmm. um, that need to be absorbed o- over the next year or two. Um, but there's a huge deficit. So there's, there's the demand for those units coming, coming available. Yeah, I mean, and you also, you know, a big question that you have to ask too is that, is it cheaper to build or is it cheaper to buy? Right. Because if it's cheaper to buy, there's no reason to build. If it's cheaper to build, then there's no reason to buy, you know, to buy existing. So, um, and where do you that's say another we're factor right as well. I'm sorry. And where do you say, and where do you say we're at right now? Cheaper to build or cheaper to buy? It, 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 well, it depends on market, right? Because you do have that locality perspective. Um, but you know, it, 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 that's the biggest thing in some markets you can, you know, build less currently. You can still build right. less. So let me ask this. another question. So that's real estate recession. There's so much talk about we're going to have a major recession coming. You know, it's been, it was talked about that it was going to come in the beginning of this year. Now it's talked about that it's going to be coming in the end of this year. Like, so can you have a economic recession without having a real estate recession? Um, you know, the recession is, is I'll tell you, we, we do, I'm not one of those people who are going to say, oh, you know, fake news, all that other stuff. But you, you do have conflicting messages. Um, if you look at it, you know, job, we have the best job growth. You know, the lowest unemployment rates is one thing that you're hearing. But then, you know, then you have these interest rates, which because they were trying to slow everything up and, Um, But a recession, the definition of a recession is two months of of low GDP, right? That two months is nothing. I mean, it really isn't, right? I mean, it is. So I think that back to your question, I mean, stocks run on a different cycle as well. I mean, it usually all comes together, you know, and I I think that there's families been fearing recessions for three years now. Yeah, There's I mean, been conversations about recessions for so long, but it, it all comes back to the fundamentals. Supply right? and demand. It, it's is there demand? Everybody knows of a piece of real estate in their market that they could go to and say, "Oh my gosh, you know, we really need a hotel here," or "That's a great location for a property," or "There's not. There needs to be an apartment building." you know, here because there's nowhere to go. Right. And, and so, um, that's just, 
and you can make money in any market, up market, down market. So I think that as long as you stay true to the fundamentals of a deal, looking at the locations, and especially, you know, if you really dig into market demand analysis, you truly can quantify where there's a need for an apartment or there's going to be oversupply. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually surprised at your, your response because before we hit record, you know, DJ was telling me like, Hey, I don't have the, you know, same perspective that a lot of people have. And so I was kind of thinking you were going to say, you're not bullish on multifamily. Well, no, I'm, here's the thing. Okay. We know that there's, we know that there's a demand, right? But what we also, what I also know is that if you couldn't make money and you were an apartment investor, then you shouldn't even be in real estate because anybody could have made money since 2012 by buying apartments. And in fact, when people, everybody goes to the money, right? And apartments made a lot of people money, but you're, we're about to run into, and we haven't bought anything in apartments for three years or so. Somebody comes to me with a development deal or they come to me with an existing property. I'm like, well, wait a second. Why? Why? Because I believe in, you know, one of my professors said one time, they're like, you buy at a high cap, you sell at a low cap. So if somebody brings me a five cap deal or a four and a half cap apartment deal, when I can invest into this modular for rent for an 11 cap or an industrial cold storage for an eight cap, why would I want to buy at a four and a half cap? You then also have the issue where a lot of people would say, oh, we're buying at a five cap and we're going to sell it at a four and a half cap. Now, we always, when we underwrite and we stress test a deal, we always add 20 bips like an institution for every year of hold. So if they say they're going to sell it a four and a half cap, we're going to say, well, you're buying at a five. Let's take 20 basis points over five years. What happens if you sell it a six? Right. So you have all these people that are doing interest only at four and a half percent. Cap rates. What's happened to cap rates? Have they gone up or down? They're going up now. Okay. Interest rates. Okay. So they're going up, which means the value is going to come down. Right. So you have interest only and you're about to lock into a new loan. Let's say you can get a loan for five and a quarter through Fannie or Freddie and you bought it at a four at a five cap. Are you negative or are you positive? Yeah. I mean, you're, you've got you're, a negative, you're negative spread against your, against your loan. So. You have negative. So if they right. have a negative, what's going to happen? Are they going to be able to continue to make those payments? They're going to have problems. And it all depends on the business plan, right? And, and how much yeah, value but, add. Yeah, but to, here's the thing. We're expecting a growth rate of 10%. We're expecting an occupancy rate of 95%, right? Everything is, and so you have all these people and you said how they plan. Well, a lot of people that have gotten into this space over the last 10 years, they've never been through a recession. They've never been through a downturn. Everything's been pie in the sky. They've been great. So they don't necessarily know how to protect their downside. And so because of that, they were interest only. They're expecting to come out of four and a half percent interest rate for permanent debt. It's now at six and a quarter. Oh, your numbers are blown. Right. And so because of that, that's going to create opportunity. So I'm bullish on multifamily because of the demand, but I'm equally bullish on the opportunities that'll be coming up. 
And, you know, through the Institute, somebody was sitting on the board and also I was talking to Glenn the other day because we know the head of real estate at the Fed. And what he was saying is that, you know, banks are, banks could shut off the spigot because they still remember the recession, right? Well, if that happens, not only are you paying more for interest, but you're going to have a lower loan to value, which was never anticipated in any of these projections by these apartment people saying, oh, we'll be at 75%. Well, it's 65. Guess what? You need to come up with more cash for that if you're going to do that. And you have a higher interest rate, which you need to make your payments now. And um, rent growth maybe isn't happening at the same rate. Right. So this is going to cause, these are, all it can do is cause problems. And in fact, I've heard from that, you know, there are people like similar to what I just said, head of the Fed for real estate that thinks that we're going to see, you know, a worse situation than the recession when it comes to debt. Now, do I think that's the case? Probably not. But when you look at the forward yield curve, I mean, we, we've been modeling out a deal we're working on at nine and a quarter interest wow. rate. And does the deal still work or not? So these are, these are uh, and, and that just comes from the experience because we've been through recessions. We've been through COVID. We've been through, you know, all of that stuff. So, so that's where we come from. But these are the things that people don't realize that they can't make their payments. What are you going to do? So there's two factors. One is can't make your payment, you know, just pure cash flow. And the second piece is the duration on the loan. So, or they, you know, they, just the assumptions. The other piece is the assumptions that were made because they're like, we're interest only for three years and then we're going to refinance right. at 4%. We got interest only at three and a quarter. Right. We're going to refinance at four and a half. Well, somebody has to refinance right now to get a permanent because they built the property. They're not coming out at a four and a half percent interest rate. They're getting right. five and a half percent, five and a quarter, six, whatever the number is. Their numbers are all whacked out. And yeah, they thought so that, 75%. That was the third piece is, yeah. is, is interest only. And now all of a sudden in year four, they're, they're having to pay P&I and their well, impacts now, negative cash flow. Well, so they're not only, they're not only, and if they purchased at a four and a half, five cap, not only are they getting less loan, now they have a permanent loan, which is a bigger payment, and they have negative leverage. Right. And, and you know, that is going to cause problems. But if somebody has long-term fixed and they have a long duration, seven years or 10 years, they most likely can ride it out as long as the cash flow is there. To Look, if you have payments. positive cash flow, it doesn't matter if the value goes down to zero. Right. It doesn't. As long as you can wait it out, you're fine. It's not going anywhere. Yep. Positive cash flow is the key. Positive cash flow is the key. And we do what's called stress testing. So we'll say, well, let's assume that you didn't sell it at a five cap and you sold it at a six cap. What, what happens if when they refinance, they have to pay six and a half instead of four and a half with what they projected? What happens if they only can get a 65% loan to value rather than they estimated a 75%, right? right. So you just start, put, start putting these different variables in there to see what happens. 
And then you need to ask yourself as an investor, in the worst case scenario, am I still okay? Right. And am I happy with that return? That's so true. So now what do you, I think I saw that you, you are going to Harvard for some kind of new role. Is that, is that? Yeah. So talk, I talk to that. What kind of what's next on the plate for you? <laughs> so I was, um, I was, uh, asked to come in and be the, the, the president of the Harvard real estate alumni organization. I actually was one of the f three founders back in 2008 and asked to come back in. And, um, and so, you know, that's, that's created for alumni that have an interest in real estate. And so we're putting together some happy hours, you know, throughout the world. And, and we're also doing, we'll have some events where we bring in a speaker or something like that. We may put together an annual conference and it's really to support uh, alumni that has an, in an interest from the various schools at the university. And we also have a, um, you know, a subgroup that they focus on providing um, uh, monies toward students, whether it's graduate students or, you know, uh, for, for doing their dissertations or, or want to go to events for different types of um, competitions. So um, that's, you know, that recently came back a, a number, couple months ago. And, and so, you know, to keep me busy outside of Evergreen, which is my, my first area of commitment and the Institute, now I've thrown that on as well. That's awesome. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, if people want to get to know you better, what's the best way for them to, to learn more about you? So they can go to uh, DJ Van Karen. Dot com and there they can get some more information about myself and they can also uh there should be an email on there where they can email me if they want to get in contact with me as well um and that's probably the best you know that's the best way to to, to do that fantastic and then who is the best candidate for like you to grow your business if they are listening like who's the who would you want to talk to if, if they were listening today? Uh, there's two, actually. Okay. One are sponsors that are looking for investment partners because we're constantly looking for opportunities. Um, right now, we've been focused on industrial uh, cold storage, industrial small bay, and modular for rent. That's where our current focus has been. Um, Secondly, we're about to roll out a proprietary real estate fund structure that doesn't uh, exist in the market. So if people have a 1031 exchange coming up, then you're definitely going to want to learn more about that because it'll outperform anything you see in the market. And then um, third would be people that might have an interest in investing next to families, some of the very well-known wealthy families. Um, and then fourth you know, people that want additional family office real estate education, and they can just go to for F-O-R-E dot institute, not dot com, but dot institute. So those those would be the areas. And um, awesome. um, there's a lot of great education on there as well. And, um, you know, but first and foremost, I, I think that, you know, investors and stuff need to talk to you for the great things you're doing and that you're providing. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I I appreciate you, you educating me because this is a whole new 
kind of land of, of, of opportunity and a different space. And, and it seems like it really has unique features that have to be considered um, in it. And um, it's interesting how you just fell into the space and you became an expert. Um, I appreciate you taking the time educating myself and also listeners. Listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that one. Until next week, sign off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. 